If you brought your Bibles with you, open up to 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 18 this morning. You can scroll there uh, in your device. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting nearer to the end of this series. Believe it or not, we only have seven chapters left, I think, after today in the book of 2 Samuel. It's going to take a few months, though, because we're breaking for uh, Christmas and then, of course, we have our You Can Ask That series that's going to continue on into the new year a little bit. But the kingdom of Israel, that is, has been fracturing in the midst of Absalom's coup. That's David's wayward son, wayward to say the least. Uh, Hushai's intervention, he's that double agent, the spy that used to be David's advisor, and, and now he's uh, helping helping Absalom. Absalom thinks he's on his side. His plan that he sold to Absalom has bought the exiled king, David, some time. He, he'd counseled uh, Hushai, he'd counseled Absalom that rather than a quick and immediate surgical strike directed at David, who's just fled the kingdom, which was what Ahithophel had suggested, that he should instead take his time and travel up and down the nation, gathering support and a larger army. Well, the delay provided time for David to assemble some help, uh, to regroup and prepare for Absalom's attack. And if all those names are a little bit confusing, I apologize. We'll, uh, and I promise we're not going to the Old Testament forever. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into some, some, uh, some text in a few months here that, that drops and leaves aside some of these difficult names. But to simplify it, David is, is that king chosen by the Lord. Absalom, sadly, is his son who's rebelled against him to the extent that he has taken over the capital and the nation and driven his father out. That's where we find ourselves right now. Well, in the interim period that Hushai's advice has given David extra time he didn't have, supporters have rallied to the king, bringing him supplies, and as we'll see, have committed to serve and defend him. Chapter 18 is a really important turning point in, in the book of 2 Samuel. The events are both tragic and healing at the same time for David and the nation. He's going to be made king again shortly, but it's going to cost him greatly. It's, it's important to point out that a measure of the difficulty and the suffering that he endures is still a direct result of his sin with Bathsheba. God had warned David through the prophet Nathan that though he was forgiven, the cost and consequences of that sin would be far-reaching. He and the nation had to learn and understand, and hopefully you and I are as well, that even forgiven sin doesn't come without real and lasting consequences. God was unbelievably merciful to forgive the king and not impose the weight of the law, but David would have to endure the pain and the results brought about by his disobedience, fallout in his life, his family, and the nation. And, and the hope, I, I believe in part at least, the intention in this being included in the text for you and I, something for us to learn and remember is to slow down in our own march towards sin, in our own recklessness in taking lightly disobedience to the Lord, that we would remember the life of David and allow the, the example given us there, the painful example to be so, sort of a, a, a road, a speed bump, you might say, um, a traffic sign that would caution us. The prophet had told the king in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, now therefore, going back to when David's sin first was exposed, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. 
Some of you know what that is in your life to experience the consequences of sin that you've committed. It's painful. Well, what was David's response to being exposed in this way? We, we read, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He humbled himself. He confessed. He admitted that he was wrong. And he repented. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. There was no question that David's great sin was forgiven. God had been incredibly merciful to him. But sometimes we imagine that forgiveness and restoration are an instantaneous process. Forgiveness certainly is, but restoration is not. God's work of disciplining, growing, and restoring us takes time and can be painful. We read of this in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Verse 11. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. King David is being trained by the Lord. This man after God's own heart, he has more to learn, more growing to do through humbling, trusting, and, and learning to walk in obedience. This morning, again, we're looking at Verses 1 through 33 of 2 Samuel chapter 18. And our message is titled, A Painful Restoration. Because although the path will be painful here in chapter 18, we see the the division and hurt of, of the last few chapters beginning to be resolved. And the road to the throne opened up again for David. There is pain and discipline, but there is yet still restoration. There is hope dawning in King David's life. His troubles are not all behind him, but will be. Eventually, though not today, we'll see him restored to the palace, but not the same David. He's better for it. He'll still make mistakes. He's not perfect, but he's better for the trials that he's endured, some of which were of his own making and a result of God's discipline in his life. And I think that's part of the encouragement here as we, as we look at David's life, as we look at a chapter that's, that it, it just, it hurts to read it. But to recognize in our own lives, God is going to do things like this. It, it, it should make us apprehensive when we're tempted to engage in sin. It should make us stop and think. Just as surely as as when we disciplined children or disciplined our own kids in in healthy ways and and help me here, you've got to, by the Holy Spirit, filter out unhealthy things that you experienced as a child, all right? We're talking about a loving father recognizing that discipline is meant to cause us, consequences are meant to cause us to think twice before we do that thing again. That's how the Lord works and operates in our lives. And, and the path that God brings us on in restoring and in growing us, following and in the midst of discipline, it's meant to grow us to a place where next time, when faced with that opportunity, we would think and reflect and say, do I really want to invite that into my life again? Do do I really want to go back to to the woodshed with the Lord? I don't want that again. There's multiple motivations for you and I to choose not to sin. Certainly looking at what it cost God's son. Meditating on the cross. But also looking and understanding what it costs us in our lives should also cause us to give pause, to slow, to turn from sin. Let's pray, and then we'll look at the first few verses here. Father, as we open your word this morning, we're praying that you would make the book speak. Make it live to us, Lord, by your spirit. Jesus, would you take our hands, take our hearts, and lead us to those places where you want us to go. 
Would you open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your law? We pray that for those of us that are gathered here together in, in the warehouse. We pray for our children as well. God, we pray that by your truth we'd be changed and equipped to live, that we might be lights for you in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our first point this morning is the battle begins. If you happen to be following along with the outline or taking notes, verse, and I'm pretty sure everything's spelled correctly today, but no guarantees. Anyway, verse one, and David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Remember I said that Hushai's planet gave David space not only to escape, to get away to the other side of the Jordan, up north to that city called Mahanaim, where he's holed up right now, but it also gave time for those loyal to David to come to his aid. Well, when he left Jerusalem, how many soldiers did he have fighting men? 600. We just read here that he's setting up captains over hundreds and thousands. Uh, David's armies have grown in this time. Now, Absalom's forces will still be larger, but David has a fighting chance. Verse 2, then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who was Joab's brother, and then another third under uh, the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. He was the one who led those 600. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, you shall not go out. For if we flee away, they'll not care about us. Nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now. This whole thing is about David, right? For you are now more help to us in the city then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. In the last chapter, we learned that Absalom's armies were near. They, they'd drawn up close to the city of Mahanaim. And David, he's got to ready his men. And so he opts to separate them into three separate battalions, we might say. Uh, because he's outnumbered, he probably figures strategically that dividing his forces and coming at this fight a little bit more creatively is going to help to give him an advantage that he's going to need. It's going to increase his army's maneuverability. Well, what should catch our attention, though, in the verses that we just read was what David told his men. He's ready to go and fight with them. He says, I'm going with you into battle. And of course, they said, no, David, you need to stay back. Now, that contrasts pretty starkly against 2 Samuel chapter 11, doesn't it? Do you remember what we read there before David sinned with Bathsheba? We read in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. There, there was no David saying, I'll go, and the people saying, no, no, David, stay back. David was disconnected with, with God's calling on his life to lead his people. And, and in that, that self-imposed leisure and spiritual laziness, David made room in his life for the lusts of the flesh, which ended up destroying him. Well, what happened when he remained there was he gave in to sin, temptation, had that adulterous affair, and it set in motion all manner of pain, which we're still looking at all the way out in chapter 18. David knows better now. He's learned he, he, he's seeking the Lord. He's trusting God. His armies are getting ready to go to battle. And David says, I'm going with you. I'm not staying back here. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not going up on any rooftops. Um, none of that. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to be fighting. But his men say, David, we, we appreciate what you're doing here. But strategically, it, it, this does not make sense for you to go into battle. Because this whole fight is about you. And they're going to look for you, and they're going to focus all their energies on you. You're worth more than 10,000 of us. And it was true. Makes more sense for him to stay back behind in the city and to administrate and direct things from there, which he did. And I'll tell you what. 
Don't you think that David's men thought, is it really a good idea for David to go into battle, uh, into the midst of a fight about which the whole problem is his son? It's probably going to be a little hard for David to be fully engaged here. David, you need to stay back. We're going to handle this for you. He needed to sit one this, this one out and let his men fight. Verse 5, now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, those three commanders, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. They all knew Absalom was not to be harmed. And David, I think, wanted to be able to have the opportunity to deal directly with his son. I think probably to be able to do what he hadn't done before. Remember, Absalom had been in exile two years in Geshur, and then he came and was in the city of Jerusalem for several years more, made to live separately from David in the palace. David, you wouldn't go to see him. I think David probably regretted that. Lost opportunity. He could have gone and spoken with his son. He could have dealt with some of the issues that separated them. Could Absalom have been won over? I don't know, but David believed it was possible. And so he tells his men, deal gently with Absalom. I'll handle him directly. Verse 6. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. And the people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And there is a Lord of the Rings reference there, but I'm going to move on. Now, David, it would seem, compensated for the smaller size of his army by, by directing the fight to take place in these woods. And I love to hike in our local um, wilderness areas, Whiting Ranch, and um, you, you think about it, on the trails, you know, everything's pretty clear, right? You can get through pretty easily, but off trail in some of the areas where all the oak trees are and the brushes is thick, imagine just riding a horse through all of that, trying to fight a battle, being opposed by soldiers. That, that would be pretty, pretty messy. David's men had spent time in the wilderness. They, they'd learned to fight in all kinds of terrain and probably would have a little bit of an advantage in these circumstances. In addition to the fact, of course, that God would be fighting for them, uh, blessing David's men, his armies. Well, Absalom's army's uh, advantage in being larger would be greatly weakened by their having to fight over uh, uneven terrain, thick brush, surrounded by tree limbs, rocks, holes, possibly swamps. It was just kind of a, a mess. They were being drawn into an area that would uh, cause their ability to fight to be diminished. It was a wise strategy on David's part, and no doubt God was on their side as well. Through the course of this fighting, the days fighting, 20,000 perished, most of which we would assume were from Absalom's armies. And, and those that remain have now been scattered and effectively defeated. So David's soldiers appear to have won the day at this point. But what about Absalom himself? We're going to see him in a moment, but I want to take a second to briefly consider David's instruction to his men regarding this rebellious son once again. Deal gently for my sake with the young son, Absalom. Why would David ask this of his armies when Absalom was the very reason that they were having to fight? I think there's a few possibilities and maybe a combination of reasons it's true that, that David was weak as a father at different points. And we've read about that. And, and we've seen where scripture spoke of how he, he wouldn't speak specifically against Absalom. Uh, a willingness to rebuke him was not there. He wouldn't discipline him. But despite this weakness, the Bible is also clear that David was a man after God's own heart. So we have to be careful about offering wholesale condemnation 
of David. I think it was more than him just wanting to spare his son pain. Keep in mind, David has also displayed a consistent determination to trust God with the throne. He's resisted fighting against enemies in the past. Saul, for example, he didn't want to be guilty of holding on to something that God was quite possibly taking away in terms of his leadership over the nation as king. He wanted to err on the side of trusting God, and that's a difficult thing to do. That requires great faith on our part when we have to hold something that God has given us with an open hand. Lord, if you want to take it away, I trust you with it. We have the tendency to want to grasp it and hold on to it and believe, you know, God gave it to me. I've got to defend it. I've got to cling to it. I've got to fight off any, any claims to it from someone else. David wouldn't do that. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 6, when David had the opportunity in the cave to, to strike Saul, you might remember that sometime back when we were in 1 Samuel, David had refused. He held back his men even and explained, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Think of that. David called his enemy who, though hateful towards him, nonetheless wore the crown of the king and sat on the throne and was therefore God's anointed. David said, Lord, forbid that I should do this thing. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. When David fled Jerusalem back in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, and the priests wanted to come bringing the ark of God, David told them no. He said, I have no delight in you. Excuse me, uh, verse 25 of chapter 15. If I have found favor in the eyes of the Lord, David said, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. I'll come back and worship here again if it's God's plan for me to do so. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. David had the humility to recognize it may be that the Lord's looking at me saying, David, I'm done with you. But here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. I wonder how many of us are willing to pray that before the Lord, which effectively is not my will, but yours be done. Lord, if it's your plan to bring me to a place of further humility, if it's your plan to bring about more brokenness, to remove from me something that I thought was what you were giving me. I'll accept that and I'll trust you. See, this, this <laughs> to call it a concept is a, is a radical understatement. This truth, this reality for David that God had driven so deeply into his heart, it, it was something he truly believed and was willing to risk everything against. David understood two things. The first was that it was not his job or right to touch the Lord's anointed. And he didn't know for sure who that was, <laughs> himself or his son. Secondly, he knew that if it pleased God, he would be king again. But he wouldn't have to scheme or manipulate to make that happen. It would be God's doing, not his own, which required tremendous faith. In addition to all of these factors, we have to remember again, this was David's son. And no doubt, as I mentioned earlier, he was still hoping that he could be won over. David, he doesn't want to lose the opportunity or stop believing in that possibility. So he asks that his men deal gently with him, which we would assume means that he not be killed. I think David may have been hoping that before the end, his son would follow his leadership and repent, humble himself, and be reconciled first to God and then to his family. David had for his son the father's heart, the heart of the prodigal son's father, waiting, watching, and hoping for the day when his son would humble himself and come to his senses. And I think that's the heart that God has called you and I to have 
toward potentially some in our lives that may represent something of an Absalom. Jesus, at one point, quoted the prophet in, in reflecting the heart of the Father, and he said, a, a bruised reed, he'll, he'll not break off, and a smoldering flax, he won't snuff out. See, he binds up the things that are broken, the people that are wounded and struggling, and he breathes back in life. We tend to be irritated by those things. We see weakness. Oh, he just needs to do that. Oh, they just need to do that. We just, somebody needs to come in and just tell them what for. We see somebody whose life is, is kind of smoldering like a, you know, you have a candle or something or a campfire or your fireplace and it's going out and it's just giving off smoke and it's an irritation. It's making your eyes water and it, it smells and you just throw some water on that or, you know, break down the, the, the coals, the embers. So that stops. And God says, no, that's my child in whose life I'm working and I'll, I'll be patient with them and merciful and, and offer them the opportunity for a second chance at life. We need to be careful in our dealing with one another, with those in our lives that we're inclined to judge and to be impatient with. It's how, it's how the Father deals with us. He's gentle Romans chapter 2, verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? His kindness. We need to guard against the tendency to condemn and deal harshly with others when we ourselves have received mercy. I love God's heart through Jeremiah on this. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Now, verses 9 through 18 explains what happens next. The rebellion ends. That's our second point. Verse 9, then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. And the mule went under the thick boughs of, a, boughs, boughs, excuse me, of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule which was under him went on. It's funny to read that Absalom rode a mule. That's the sterile offspring of a male donkey and a female horse. They're, they're still ridden like horses today. You may not be aware of that, but they are more commonly used as work animals. We're told in 2 Samuel 13 that David's sons rode mules. And at Solomon's coronation, you'll find as you read forward into uh, Chronicles that David had Solomon ride on his mule. The choice of a mule, it may have been symbolic in deference to Deuteronomy 17 that forbid the kings of Israel from amassing a lot of horses to themselves. So maybe they you know, chose to ride a mule uh, to show that they remembered the law. We're not sure. And uh, Dave, Absalom, we don't know exactly why he did it. Maybe he was just trying to be like everybody else. Uh, but needless to say, he rode a mule. Well, we read earlier that this battle took place in the forests of Ephraim. And there were uh, many and multiple inherent dangers in attempting to fight a battle in, in a uh, in, in a geographical situation like a forest, let alone doing so on horseback. So as Absalom, as he rode, he lost his bearings and charged directly into a tree where the limbs were just so, and his head and neck became lodged between two branches, and, and his mule kept going out from underneath him. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? You just uh, position yourself again. Next time you go on a walk, if you haven't, go, let's all go to Whiting Ranch today and, and walk through the wilderness and kind of look down into the, the real rugged areas and imagine a horse getting spooked or riding quickly through there. Man, if you don't lose an eye, you're, you're going to potentially get a branch that impales you. It's really not hard to imagine that he would accidentally lose his uh, orientation and 
go right into a couple of tree branches that grab him by the neck. And we're not really told, but it's possible that some were penetrating his, his flesh. He was stuck. He couldn't get down, and he's hanging there in the air. Kind of a grotesque image here, but that's where we find Absalom. Verse 10, now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. One of David's men stumbles, comes across Absalom in this position. So Joab said to the man who told him, Joab, one of the three commanders, you just saw him, and why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Joab's frustrated. He says, what do you mean you saw Absalom? You didn't kill him? I would have given you money and, and hooked you up with a new belt, and I would have taken care of you, man. You missed your opportunity. And the guy says, Joab, what are you talking about? David told us not to strike his son. And Joab's frustrated with him, and, and, and the guy says, and you know what? Chances are if I'd done it anyway, you would have acted like you didn't even know who I was. This, this guy, he's, he's pretty far down on the food chain, and he's like, I've seen how you guys operate up top. And Joab, you'd be looking out for yourself and would look at me like, yeah, you'd never met me before. And, and Joab just kind of says, oh, well, whatever, and, and pushes past him. He's irritated with him. Verse 14 then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. The idea is that he, he nailed him in, in his chest region three different times, but he was still alive. And 10 young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So they all just attacked him and he's gone. Uh, brutal. Deuteronomy 21 tells us that according to the law, he who is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. And so Absalom was. Whereas his father's heart was, was close to God, David wanted to please the Lord and was, was willing to close the gap quickly when he drifted from God. Joab's was, or Absalom's, excuse me, was distant at best. He was self-willed. He was selfish. He was fleshly. He was impenitent. He was a, a Saulish kind of a man. Verse 16, so Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him to a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's monument. While the battle is over, Joab, he, he blew the trumpet, he called the men back, mission accomplished, Absalom has been defeated, and then they took his lifeless body, the body of the king's son, and threw it into a pit and covered it with rocks, wanting to probably uh, make sure his body couldn't be found and there was really no recognizable grave where loyalists could come and, and remember him. We read here of this pillar that at some point previously Absalom had raised up to be remembered by because evidently the three sons he had that we learned about in 2 Samuel 14, 27, they must have died. And so being childless, he wanted to have this uh, memorial to him. He wanted to be remembered in some way. And that's the only way he was remembered by basically a pile of rocks in his grave and the rocks that he raised up to his own name. Now, finally, let's look at these last verses, 19 through 33, a father grieves. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me now run and take the news to the king. Ahimaaz was the son of one of the priests. 
He was part of David's reconnaissance network. And he's there with Joab and the armies of David. And he knows that something exciting has happened. And he wants to be right in the middle of taking the news. Maybe he wants to reprise his role of... Uh, of spy and taking something important to David again. Maybe it almost seems he wants to be viewed in David's eyes as great. And so he's, he's hungry for that opportunity. Let me now run and take news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day, but you shall not take, excuse me, you shall take no news. Why? Because the king's son is dead. Though Ahimaaz was anxious to be in the middle of the action, Joab knew it was a perilous thing to be the bearer of this kind of news to King David. Really, Joab is trying to spare Ahimaaz. He tells him, look, this, this isn't your day to run, okay? I'm going to send somebody else. You just stand back. Instead, he orders a servant to be the messenger, the bringer of bad news. Verse 21, then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, he he still is saying, I want to go, give me something to do. But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. He's like, I'm really good at running. Joab, please let me. In fact, I'm faster. Just watch. Look what I can do. So Joab said, why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? You got nothing to say. You have no reason to run. But whatever happens, he said, let me run. Please let me go. So he said to him, run. Oh, fine. Whatever. Run. (laughs) Then Ahimez ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. There's almost this idea here that he took sort of a shortcut and, you know, they're going this way and he just makes this beeline and he was a faster runner, I guess. It's only three miles to Mahanaim from where this battle took place. But I'm sure it would have, this is a cross-country run, so you'd be exerting some energy here. Imagine being the servant that was chosen, Right? Ahimaaz, no, this isn't a good, it's not going to be a good idea to bring this news. You, servant, come here. You're going to be one to tell the king that his son is dead. Yeah, the son that we all heard him say, deal gently with him for my sake. Yeah, go let him know that that is not exactly what happened. I'm sure he'll be fine. And here's Ahimaaz begging to be a part of this. Uh, Finally, Joab says, okay, fine, go. But how foolish. He doesn't even have a message. It, it is going to become evident later that it's possible he didn't even know that Absalom was killed and that that was the thrust of what needed to be shared. He, he knows that the armies of David are enjoying victory, but he doesn't have all of the details, but he's caught up in the emotion of it. He pictures for you and I the temptation to force ourselves into the spotlight onto the stage. You ever struggle with that a little bit? Like, like this is, I'm going to seize my moment. It's not happening fast enough, so I'm going to make it happen. I, I'm going to get out there ahead, and we find ourselves ahead of God. Maybe there are those in our lives that are actually saying, hey, slow down. Hey, wait a minute. This isn't your time right now. We need to be sensitive to that in the spirit. When God's holding us back, preventing us, it's, it's because he knows that the timing that's best. And sometimes there are even unhealthy reasons in there that, that God needs to work out. Looks like Ahimaaz was interested in drawing attention to himself. Uh, this, this fed his flesh. But unlike Ahimaaz, in those moments when we've not been called on and, and sent, we need to exercise the self-control and the humility to remain silent, to be content with where God has called us to. Jeremiah 45.5, the Lord speaks to the prophet's assistant, Baruch, and he tells him, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Wait and then speak when God gives you the word and the platform. Don't push and force yourself into something that, that God is not opening up. 
We can make big mistakes in doing that. And I think in looking at Ahimaaz, there's a reminder to trust the Lord in his timing. Well, though not having anything to say, he, he was fast, and he took a shortcut across the plain. And he arrived then at the gates of Mahanaim first. Verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked, and there was a man running alone. Then the watchman cried out and told the king, and the king said, if he's alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. So they see this guy running, and they know it's, it's not the whole army. It's one guy. He's bringing a message. Verse 26, then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there's another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. He was faster, a little bit closer to sea. And the watchman said, it looks like it's Ahimaaz. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. So Ahimaaz called out and said to the king, all is well. Ahimaaz gets there. He's panting. He gets to the king. He has his moment. The king looks at him. He's excited. And, and what news do you bring Ahimaaz? And Ahimaaz is just drinking it in like, yes, news. I have things to say, except he had nothing to say. And that was the problem. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. He basically says, yay, we won. The king said, is the young man Absalom safe? Imhaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and me your servant, I saw a great tumult, but, but I didn't know what it was about. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And David kind of rolls his eyes like, what are you doing here, Imhaz? You have nothing really to tell me. Stand aside and let's hear what the other guy has to say. Verse 31, just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there is good news, my Lord, the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who arose against you. So again, David, our armies have won. You've been victorious over Absalom. And the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. This was a gentle and a respectful way of sharing with the king this painful truth. Probably the long run had given him time to think through. He's like, okay, what am I, how am I going to say this? How am I going to give this bad news to the king? And so he doesn't even mention Absalom. He doesn't really, he, he, he more so speaks generally saying, may the fate that he experienced be that which your true enemies suffer. Verse 33, then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. As I said before, it really, it's a tragic chapter it opens up the pathway for David to be restored to the throne, but painfully so. As David, he grieves over the reality that he may never see his son again and that in life, he didn't have the opportunity to see him repent. He wasn't able to be restored to him. It's sad. David made many mistakes in his life, but maybe one of those greater mistakes that relate to this tragedy was his failure to take advantage of time when he had it. David had those years in Jerusalem when instead of going to Absalom and seeking to reconcile, seeking to confront to deal with truth. He didn't have to compromise to do what needed to be done that could have reached Absalom's heart. We don't know. And I would just remind us, simply because Scripture, you know, the story's told for us. It's recorded, right? Our lives are not, okay? Yes, God knows the end from the beginning, but, but he's working today in real time, and he's listening to our prayers, calls for us to pray, and responds to them. We spoke about that a little bit last week. Don't waste the time that God's given you today. Don't 
miss the opportunity to pick up the phone, to write a letter, to send a note, to pray. Not everybody has the luxury of being able to do that, I realize, for different circumstances. And in some cases, death has parted us from those that we wish we could have had the opportunity to at least say something to. But in this space of grace that God's given us, we have the opportunity to invest. We, we have the opportunity to reach. By God's grace, may, may we communicate the, the way we see the heart of the Father re reflected in, in, in David's heart to see his son preserved. That, that we wouldn't be frustrated by the bruised reed, irritated by the smoldering flax, but that we would pray for the heart of the Father who binds up those, as I mentioned earlier, who breathes life there. May we be used by God to bring life and healing and restoration to those struggling in a place where we're inclined to maybe dig in our heels the way David did. May, may, may the Lord soften our stand to, to show his kindness. It's a sad ending to this chapter. It's the grief of a father whose prodigal never came home. David, he wasn't allowed the opportunity to reconcile. He'd missed the chance to apologize for not rightly handling Amnon's assault of Absalom's sister Tamar for having been absent as a father. He didn't get to be restored to him. As much pain and grief as Absalom had caused both he and the nation, he was still his son and always would be. So the chapter, it ends on a painful note. But this is a turning point as David may now return to Jerusalem with Israel uniting eventually under his leadership. The path to David's restoration, it, it was paved with a lot of hurt. But God was able to lead him through it. David wanted to learn, to grow, and to heal. And sadly, in contrast, Absalom did not. His life was tragic in part because of David's failure, but probably more so because of his own. His choosing of his flesh over the things of God. Because least we forget, Absalom was a grown man. Some of you, you have grown men and women in your lives and we can torture ourselves with what we shoulda, coulda. Is it my fault? They have access to the grace of God just the same as you do. Be a conduit of that grace and pray for it over their lives. It's been said that the same sun that hardens the clay softens wax. Pray for the condition of that person's heart, but they are responsible for it. Absalom, he was unwilling to humble himself, to forgive, to seek to honor and serve God before his own plans and agenda. He would never surrender his will. He would not yield control. He insisted on building his own kingdom at the expense of God's. And as we close this morning, I want to reflect on, on the story of the prodigal son, who according to Luke 15 verse 11 came to his father and said, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So his father divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the young son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine." And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? What happens right here makes all the difference in the world. In our hearts and in the hearts of, of the lost and those that are away from the Lord. Will the pressures that come about naturally as the result of our sin, the, the, the trials, the hardship that God brings into our life in, in his loving discipline, will they drive us to remember the Father's heart? Or will we harden ourselves and go further into sin and run from the Lord? This morning, God's calling you and I to soften our hearts, to respond to him, to remember his loving kindness. 
Our Father never stops watching and waiting for us. Like David, hoping we'll humble ourselves and invite reconciliation. He arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. That's the father's heart toward the prodigals. Jesus said there's more rejoicing in heaven over one, one sinner who repents than over many righteous God's looking and waiting for that moment in our lives and he's looking for us to be his ambassadors in the hearts of those around us in whose lives he's working in that way. Let's stand as we close our time here. Pray as we prepare to end our time with a final song of worship. Father, as we reflect on on this word, Lord, Tragedy and, and deliverance, pain and restoration. God, where we reflect on your heart. The heart of the Father for the lost. And Lord, whether we have a prodigal in our life, whether, whether we're the prodigal, God, we want to humble ourselves before you. We don't want to be guilty of looking in judgment shooting the wounded. Lord, instead of having your heart to see them restored. God, that we would have a deeper understanding of your grace. That we would remember that we were once like that prodigal away from you. And you waited and watched and welcomed us when we didn't deserve it. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, may we extend that same mercy and grace to others. Would you use us in that way today? In Jesus' name.